Well, hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm Rob, and I am so glad you're here today. This is our last week of Relation Slips. So in these weeks leading up to Easter, we've been talking about how really if we have been loved by God and we understand we've been loved by God and touched by His Spirit, that that compels us to love others. We've been looking at a number of ways that we actually mess up or slip up in that and just honestly talk about how we can overcome those things so that we can prevent those relation slips even before they happen. Today I want to finish by looking at how we often slip up and mess up with hurting people. I'm thinking of those people who suffered a great loss, maybe recently in their life, potentially uh, through bad news from a doctor, through uh, potentially a divorce, uh, even a death in the family, or a job loss, or a house transfer, something that really turns someone's world upside down. How we can love those people well, because it's really easy when someone is hurting that much to put our foot in our mouth. Maybe it's just me, but I think we hurt sometimes more than we help. So, uh, Neil Anderson says in his book, The Bondage Breaker, he said, if we could memorize just one verse and never violate it, then most of our problems would go away in our homes, in our work, and in our churches. And that one verse is, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's Ephesians 4. And according to Neil, if we just did that, things would be okay. So, why is it so difficult to say helpful things to hurting people? Have you thought about that before? Well, I've got a scenario in case that's hard for you to think about. So imagine you're on an airplane. For some of you, that might not be hard. Some of you might even, in fact, be looking forward to getting on an airplane soon. But imagine you're on an airplane, and you've just settled into your chair. And yes, the leg room is crowded, but you've got your good book that you're about to read or you're putting your headphones in to listen to some music, or maybe even you're pulling out a laptop to get some work done, when the air is suddenly pierced by the sounds of a shrieking baby. Okay, Not gentle tears, but all-out shrieks. Now, you could respond with mild annoyance, that you never use any words. It might come across in your face. Maybe you respond with a sympathetic look to those parents who are like, oh, I feel your pain. Or maybe you're one of those people that puts up their hand, hits the button, and begs the stewardess to find any other place on the plane for you to sit. But all of those responses, granted, they're probably on a spectrum, they're all actually focused on the person who's looking at the person in the pain. But they're not, actually, they're not actually focused on the person in pain. So what pops into your head? Well, Helen Reese, who is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, she's also the director of the Empathy and Relational Science Program, and coincidentally the co-founder and chairman of Empath Empath Empathetics Corporation. She witnessed the most amazing event on a plane very similar to what I just described. She watched a three-year-old boy wiggle out of his seat, toddle over to this screaming baby, take out his own pacifier, 
and hand it to the little kid. Now, I know some of you are new parents and you're not into sharing pacifiers or nummies as they were called in my house, but isn't that the most beautiful response? That three-year-old truly saw, heard, and felt what that child was going through and said, I'm, I'm here. I think that's what most of us want. We want not unwholesome talk to come out of our mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. See, if we could have someone else see us and hear us and attempt to respond according to our needs, I think the world would be transformed. So today we're going to look at what to say and not to say to hurting people that actually helps build trust with them and connect with them. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking in the book of Job. And Job has several important themes throughout this classic book. But we're going to be focusing in on those first conversations with the person who's suffering. So if you don't know the story... There's a man named Job who's been around. They, that scholars think this is maybe one of the first books that was written in the scriptures. And so Job is this person in ancient times, and things are going well in his life. He has integrity in his life, and tragedy strikes his life. I mean, in a major, major way. In one day, he loses all of his children. He loses his entire workforce and all of his livestock. So all of his food supply. Now, I've sat with parents. Let me just scan the room here. I've sat with people who are almost older than everyone in the room. And when they lose a child, it really doesn't matter if that child is 60 years old or 40 years old or 20 years old or 2 years old. Every one of them says, you're not supposed to bury your kids. Job loses all of his kids. He loses his workforce, which might mean he loses his work. And his response in chapter 1, as they got up, he tore his robe and he shaved his head. And then he fell on the ground in worship. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gives, or the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with the wrongdoing. Now, I wish I could have that kind of a response, because it is pretty incredible. But things got worse for Job. His body is attacked with these boils from head to toe, the scriptures say, from the Top of, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, he was covered in these heinous skin sores. This, this, bo- this word boils is the same word in the, in the Hebrew as the attack of the sixth plague in Egypt in the book of Exodus. So these would be blistering, festering, and painful. And it says that Job took a piece of pottery, a piece of broken pottery, and he scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. Now, sitting in the ashes would be this ancient Near Eastern symbol for mourning. 
and so would tearing your robe and shaving your head. But it could also be because he has these heinous skin sores that he's now considered an outcast in society. And so that ash heap that he is sitting in is actually near the burn piles of trash outside the city. See, I've always pictured Job sitting like near a le- a yesterday's campfire outside his house. It's an entirely different picture for me to picture Job outside of town. There's a whole different level of isolation that comes into my mind. Maybe the benefit is that it is obvious that Job is suffering. And we have to be really careful what we say to people who are suffering. Because sometimes we can't see it. Like Job's wife, this is her only line in the story. She does come up later, but this is the one spoken part. And she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin by what he said. Now, Job is not calling his wife foolish. In case your translations say differently, he does call her advice foolish, but not his wife. Yet, Job's wife is not putting on a facade that everything's going to be okay. Job's wife uses the same phrase that God uses when there's this whole other conversation that's happening in Job 1 and 2. Job, or Job's wife uses the same phrase that God uses for Job. Are you still maintaining, like, he's maintaining his integrity. There's, there's a comfort, I think, in that. And there's a comfort in when you're hurting and when things are really bad, that someone can just say it. Things are really bad. Maybe not the curse God and die part, but she's not, she's not offering a fake comfort or a fake consolation. She is telling him what to do, which sometimes isn't helpful when we're hurting. But he has, he has this amazing response. And then his three friends enter the story. And it says in uh, verse 11 that when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all his troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes, they all came from different places, and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their head. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, if we could just stop here, this would be a beautiful picture of comfort. Here's someone who's hurting. They're going through something awful, and none of them speak a word before Job speaks. So I think in youth ministry, I used to call this showing up and shutting up. Sometimes when you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say, showing up and shutting up is a great thing. It signifies you're present with the person. And rarely does a response make things better, especially when we're hurting. Am I, am I right? But being present and saying, I'm not even sure what to say right now, is 
actually comforting to people. And that's what his friends do. The rest of the things they do uh, are following the traditional, uh, the traditional Jewish customs for mourning. Tearing their jackets and throwing dust on their head and is showing their solidarity with him, that they're joining him in the morning. Crying is showing their grief. And sitting with him on the ground without trying to fix him is showing their empathy. Now, as everything turns out great till this point, that lasts for a week. But then Job talks. And he starts challenging being, uh, well, he, he curses the day of his birth. I don't know how that translates to today, but I, I'm sure you can make a picture. It's not a great phrase. He continues to complain in great detail, and then he closes with this in chapter 3, verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, to those who search for it more than hidden treasure, and who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For those for sighing, has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And Job is absolutely and simply telling it like it is. Maybe you think he's being dramatic, but think about what he's lost. And this is uh, the thing, rather than try and do a word study on this, if we just take it in for what it is, there's a great deal of emotion here. And what I turn to is thinking about the people in my life, even if that person has been me, who've actually had a loss so profound that they'd rather die. See, I think... Honestly, in the culture we live in, we celebrate youth, we deny aging, and we minimize death. And so this, in my opinion, leaves us utterly ill-equipped to deal with loss and respond to those who are suffering. Deny aging, celebrate youth, and minimize death. I think I'm pretty right on, if I do say so. Now, People who are suffering are what mental health professionals and actually Bible scholars, I don't know how often those are put in the same category, they, they simply call a person who is suffering like this disoriented. Meaning their world has been turned upside down. They've lost their bearings and it's like they were sitting in one chair that had four legs and all of a sudden one gets kicked out and it cracks and falls over. And so, not to be too simplistic, but they're trying to right themselves because what's what was up is now down, and what's down is now up. And they're trying to figure out how in the world they can get up, and they're willing to grab onto anything that they can hold onto. Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar and Jesus follower, says that while many of us yearn for equilibrium, rarely do we stay in that place for very long. In fact, we live most of our lives going in between the two extremes. He suggests 
Instead, that we regularly find ourselves in one of three places. The first is orientation, which is this familiar place where everything makes sense. You understand, if, you, if you're married, you understand the person that you live with. If you have children, you understand a little bit what they're going through. They have normal responses to things. You rarely say, how could you think that way? Everything makes sense. Then there's disorientation. That's a place when our world collapses and we find ourselves in this deep, dark pit. And then there's reorientation. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Reorientation is the place where we realize that God has taken us out of the pit. And even though it's not familiar, this new place actually is filled with gratitude and an awareness of God and ourselves. I find those actually really helpful. Coincidentally, if you're looking for a study or looking for somewhere to read, go to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is filled with psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And they are very helpful to someone who's in a place where they can't articulate their feelings well. Or if you're someone who's like, I don't, I don't spend time thinking about my feelings. Then just read those. They'll feel for you. But orientation is not quick or easy. Because, again, disoriented people say down is up and up is down. And that's why disoriented, suffering people say things that make no sense. And they really don't need you to correct them. That will come later. And if they say things that are incorrect about God, God can handle it. You don't need to correct their theology right then either. God's hearing them and where they're at. So we shouldn't expect people who are hurting to make sense when life isn't making sense. What I think God is inviting us to do, like, like in this picture, is sit with someone and give them a space where they can just vent their feelings, which don't make sense. And this is where most of us slip up in our relationships. We feel responsible to say something or do something, and, so, and that's what Job's friends did. For the next 35 or so chapters, they're in a dialogue that's, that's really ugly, actually. And it's 4,000 years old, and I think it's incredibly relevant. Just quickly, Eliphaz is this maybe mystical guy who wants to spiritualize everything. So if you've ever been hurting and someone says, oh, God's got this, everything's going to be okay. Now, Job doesn't punch him, so I don't think we should, but if someone says that to you, painfully smile and walk away. Uh, they might say, God works all things together for good. It's a good scripture that's not appropriate for that moment. And the other person hears that scripture as, well, I must not love God enough because he's not working it out for me. Bildad, the second friend, is this friend who seems to like to idealize everything. If you, if you read through this scripture, he at one point says, well, only righteous people gain favor with God, so if you think you're righteous, then you just should go plead your case with God. It kind of is idealizing the situation. And then Zophar is this rational guy who, who says, well, we can't understand God, so just confess what you've done wrong and work harder to please God. Now, I, I think all of these things are warped views of God, my opinion, but uh, I think a solid one. So why are they included? 
if they're all warped. I think they're included not to teach us about God, but rather to illustrate to us how we humans, when we're in the agony of crisis, so easily misunderstand or twist who God is and what he does in our lives. So if you were to go home and read the whole book or listen to the whole book, which is a good read, you would discover how over and over in the story, we, how the, how the text repeatedly exposes this inherent inclination for us to call God into question rather than ourselves. Now, if the person who's hurting is calling God into question, how can we respond well? Well, I think there's some practical ways that are in the text and implied in the text that can do that. And they just happen to correspond with the word help so that you can remember them. Because so often I find, especially in the Midwest, when someone is hurting, our response is, ooh, they look like they're really hurting. I don't want to offend them and say something stupid. So I'll just stand over here. When, when the person just feels utterly alone. So one way we can win their trust and connect with them, because really, the person who's hurting, you got to think of them on life support. They have just enough energy to survive. And so really, they can only accept help from people who are willing to help them survive. So the first thing we can do is we can hear the whole person. To hear the whole person isn't just to hear their words, it's to hear their body and their body language. It's to hear their tone. It's to try and start to understand maybe where they're coming from. It's to look at their face. Our, our face muscles can do amazing things. And to connect with them and avoid jumping to judgments or conclusions. If we're, if we're really intent on listening to the whole person, and, and I would even go so far as to say, and how the Holy Spirit is in that conversation and in that person, even if they don't feel them, we're going to be very, very likely to hold our words and to hold our judgments and conclusions. So we stay curious. And, and truly, if we think about it, we do want to make it better. But we don't need to put a silver lining on it. We don't need to try and give a response because rarely does a response make something better. Instead, being with the person actually makes it better. It helps them believe, and I truly think this, it helps them believe that if you can be here when I'm hurting, then maybe God can be here when I'm hurting. One of the phrases that's, that, or quotes that's really helped me in this area is, um, there's a world of difference between walking a mile in your shoes and having your feet and walking a mile in your shoes. So it's very noble to walk a mile in someone's shoes before you try and say something to their situation. But it's something incredibly different than for you to imagine what it's like to have that person's feet to put those shoes on, 
to then walk a mile in it. To know that your personality in that situation is going to look different than their personality in their situation. That their childhood and upbringing and experience has all been different than yours. And so for them to respond like you think they should respond isn't going to be helpful. So that's one way that I help hear the whole person. The next way is eye contact. Even if you're from uh, various cultures in the world, eye contact with a person who's hurting signifies in no other way that connection is happening. You can look into someone's life. You can look into their emotions. You let the other person know that you see them. You can more easily notice their facial expressions. The next way is to listen to their emotions, which is a little different than hearing the whole person because in hearing the whole person, you're looking at everything, but in listening for their emotion, you're specifically trying to zero in on what that person is feeling. Feelings don't reign over everything, but when someone is hurting, feelings validate where they're at. And if we listen for those emotions, we're going to connect with their pain. We're going to be patient and create that safe space that allows them to hold that emotion. If you get nervous, can I just encourage you? I've done it before. Don't share cliches. It's not going to be helpful. And, and correct their thoughts about God at that moment because it's not going to be helpful. There'll be other times if you really truly love that person, you will win their trust in those moments. And weeks or months later, you'll be able to have conversations about good thoughts about God. God's nature hasn't changed in this whole story. And at the end of the book, God gives them a little correcting. And I think he'll do that in our lives too. And one thing that I found helpful from Brene Brown, who's um, a connections expert, don't say anything that starts with that least. Like if your friend is going through a miscarriage and they already have a child or two, don't say, at least you have other children. It totally invalidates where they're at. If you have someone in your life who's struggling in their marriage, don't say, at least you found love before. It's not helpful to where they're at. So just try and take that one. It's been helpful for me when I'm talking to someone who's hurting. I, maybe I've done that with you. And finally, the P is, is a double word score, presence and posture. So Job's friends were present with him. They Time and expense and travel to go and see that person. And for some of us, that is impossible. But when it is, go. Be present. When it's not, consider uh, a video call versus just a phone call. So you can see their face. So that you can more easily hear their tone through that's validated through that visual. But when you're there, be fully present, not distracted. And then if you are in person or in video, be aware of your posture. They actually did a study on this with patients. And they had simply had some of the doctors come into the room and sit with the patient. And what they noticed was not only did the doctor stay longer, but the person dramatically higher in their responses to the doctor understood and listened to me. Simply by sitting, saying, so what brings you in today? 
See, these are just really small ways, and I, I think they are backed up in the scripture, where we cannot let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth, but doing things that are helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When we started the service, we talked about how we should do things and look to the interests of others. Derek gave us that challenge. We talked about a song about acknowledging that God is here and wanting him to have his way in our lives. So one of the things that we could just stop and do is to say, God, how often do I think about my response and hold it and make sure it passes the Ephesians 4 test? Is it, is it helpful? Is it wholesome? Does it build the other person up? Is it what they need? And is it from you, God? Just asking the question, God, is what I'm thinking something that's for me or for them? Started doing that, I don't know, five years ago. It's transformed my conversations. Just holding that for a moment. Holy Spirit, is this, is this what is just for me, what I'm thinking, or for them? And it allows me to offer grace to others and actually allows me to receive God's grace. And that's why we're here. Because there is a God who came in Jesus, who lived this out, this life, in this way, who saw people and heard them that others ignored, who sat with people who were hurting, who gave responses to people who were hurting that they needed according to their needs. When Jesus goes to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus has died, Mary gets one response, even though she says the very same phrase that her sister says, Martha gets a different response because Jesus knew how to do this. This is who we are. This is who God invites us to be. And this is what it means to love God and love others. So as the band comes up and we close, I would just encourage you to think about, God, where in my life do I violate that principle? And where in my life do I use it? God, are there things in my life that I'm not seeing? Holy Spirit, what is needed in this moment for them? What is needed in this moment for me? Maybe you even actually know of one of these ways that right now that God is saying, use that because there's a hurting person in your life that needs it. There's a story of a girl named Kelly who was in a horrendous car accident when she was 10 years old. And over the next five to seven years, she went through surgery after surgery after surgery to try and be healed. And she, in the end of that, was still left with a paralyzed arm that she has to wear a brace on to protect it. I mean, the reality was that her whole family was saved in this car accident, but her life was permanently and forever changed. And everywhere that she went through middle school and high school, college and beyond, she would have cashiers and uh, restaurant servers and even, her, even new friends ask, oh, what'd you do to your arm? Sometimes carelessly and sometimes carefully, some of them did it really poorly. And she was in a place of disorientation. And as she went through this, 
she began to be reoriented to the time that she could finally see that God had brought her out. So no matter what the person, she would say, actually, I was in a car accident that almost ended my life and took my family. But God saved us. And though I have a paralyzed arm, I have a visual reminder of God's faithfulness to my family. And I'm so thankful for that. That response has allowed her to connect with more people than she would have ever been able to connect with had she not had this injury. People have opened up to her about what they are struggling with because they can physically see that she can understand and connect with them. I don't want any one of us to have to go through something like that. But if we use some of these skills, if we really look at the book of Job, if we really understand how much God has done in our lives, I believe that we can use the same kind of responses because it's a reality in our own life. What would happen in the world? Father, I pray that you would do a work in us and that you would speak to each one of us about where we're at because you know intimately where each one of us is. Some of us are still contemplating our, our relationship with you, God, our, our beliefs about you. Others of us are in a place where, where things are good, but, but we haven't really thought about how faithful you've been. And others of us, God, we're in such a dark place that it's hard to even know if you're there. Hard for us to hear people that say it's going to be okay, that try to reach out to us. I pray that your grace would fall in this place right now and you would speak to us.